Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, Steve, normally this is the bit where the show where I um, I ask people about their childhood, but before that, I need to talk about my childhood very briefly. And I have to say, in many ways, you, Steve Perryman, ruined uh, my view of football. You started playing for Spurs just as I started going over there as an eleven and twelve year old. So by the time you'd finished. I was a grown man. I had a job. Um, and I believed that every team had a Steve Perryman who played every game uh, forever. And I also believed that all those cup finals that you captain Spurs in, that Spurs would go on and get into cup finals. And they haven't. So I blame you for that. And I've also got to make a confession briefly. And that is this. Um, when people, um, when, when Glenn Hoddle sat in that chair, when Ozzy Ardila sat in that chair that you're in, when Graham Roberts sat in that chair, and when Martin Chivers sat in that chair, I told all of them that they were my hero growing up. It was a lie. You were my hero growing up. Until Pat Jennings comes, you will be my hero sat in that chair. Let me know when Pat comes. I want to be here as well. <laughs> OK. Talk to us about... You grew up in, um, in, in Ealing and grew up in Northolt, I think, isn't it? In, in North West London. West London, West London yeah. Um, two elder brothers. Um, I followed them to Elliot Screen Grammar School in Northolt. Uh, up to that point, I'd played for the district team played actually a year early in the district team at primary school. So I then went to the grammar school and completely finished with football because they didn't play competitively. We were only allowed to play basketball competitively. You ain't built for basketball, do you mind me saying that? I, I was a set-up man, actually, so I, <laughs> I did OK. We won the we won the county title there you go. a number of years. Um, not a goal scorer either of baskets, if that's what it's called. So... Um, uh, it wasn't until my under-15 year when the sportsmaster went on a refresher course. The new chap came in, didn't really know the politics of our school, put us all in for the district team, and I was lucky enough to get in. Tottenham saw me on my first game, Ealing against Harrow at Salvatorian College, and uh, we won 9-1, we were a goal down. And that afternoon, Bill Nicholson knocked on the door, uh, not Bill Nicholson, Bill Nicholson's chief scout knocked on the door, Charlie Faulkner, and offered me if I signed this form, I could come training with him. My brother, who's uh, uh, four years older than me, and a uh, sort of, you know, I follow him, Ted, he said, no, Charlie, he's not going to sign that form. And I'm looking at him thinking, shut up, 
Mm-hmm. Shut up, Ted. I'm, I'm going to sign that form. No, he's not going to sign the form because he doesn't have to to come training with you. And obviously, Ted knew more than I did, being four years older, but only 18. So um, that led to a very long and successful career at Tottenham. That's where it all started. Um, but a lot of it was due to the fact that I had two older brothers. I wanted to be with them. They were playing football over the fields, over the park, outside the house, in the road. I wanted to be with them. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be with my two older brothers and their mates. So it was great. And I was always playing with older kids. So, of course, when you get back to playing with your own age level, it's not easy, but it's a bit easier well, so, you're, you're obviously a very talented player, Steve, because you were playing, you know, top-level football at 17 years of age. Um, talk to me about um, your mum and dad and, and growing up, because um, it's really hard, I think, for the younger people listening to this show now. Um, you and I, you've got a couple of years on me, but uh, it's very hard for people to understand, uh, although perhaps money wasn't as, as, uh, as, as easy to obtain as it is now, um, it was an amazing time to grow up in London, I always thought, in and around London, because everything was so free and, and not so, so much stuff. Music and the football, it was so near you and so available. I, I had a very enjoyable upbringing. Um, lived in a council house, no problem with that. Um, we had to run downstairs in the morning when we got up to have an uh, electric fire to get dressed in front of. Otherwise, the house was freezing. Um, my dad had been a Coleman all his life. Uh, and then that industry come to a finish, so he... All right, let me just explain again for the teenagers, the coal men. Back in the 60s, people had to store coal fires, but somebody used to have to deliver the coal, and they used to come. I remember the coal men had a kind of a leather thing they wore over their head and, and their shoulders. back. Yeah. yeah, which allowed them to carry the coal sacks. And the coal man, when he used to come to our house, we'd go, I'd go up with our sixpence or whatever it was to pay, and my mum said, go and pay the coal man. Now, you really smelt of coal dust. Very much um, so. Did your dad, your dad smell of coal dust, I presume? Uh, yeah, my dad got home every day, Black, black of the ace of spades. I mean, he was he was covered in coal and soot and whatever. And at hol- school holiday times, he actually did take my two brothers with him on the coal lorry. And they would sort of be around and people would give them the, the, the drink, yeah. the, the tea money. Yeah. And um, so I always wondered why I wasn't allowed to go. And that was because um, two days consecutively, one brother and then the next one, both got some coal dust in their eye. And it stopped work. <laughs> Had to go to a chemist and get it out of their eyes. So that was my dad was saying no more. So the, the little one's not going. But it was a great upbringing. We just played football from morning, noon and night. Outside the house, against the wall. With mates, we would have keeping up competitions. We would be in the, in the road. Uh, we lived in a cul-de-sac. We'd have 2v2, 3v3. Of course, no one was in charge of you. You were just setting your own rules. It was fantastic. <laughs> you were having fun. And, um, you know, as soon as people start telling you what to do next or you're not doing this good enough, that's when it starts to get a bit grey. So, um, but then, of course, more kids would come out. So you knew that this space wasn't big enough in the road. So you'd go over to the field. And then you'd a certain amount of limited space there. And then more kids would come off the different estates. And then you'd move over to the park. And you ended up with about 15, 18 aside. It was, it was amazing. A question I ask everybody of your generation and who made a successful career in football, did, did you bother at school? Well, yeah, this was the point. When I had the chance to join Tottenham, um, apparently I'd signed, or my parents had signed, for me to stay at this grammar school till I was 18. 
Here's me wanting to leave at the end of my fourth year as a 15-year-old. They went berserk because they said that this was, I was going to go to university and all this, which I couldn't quite see. I, there was no chance I was going to work indoors. I had to work out of doors, if anything. And um, so I actually got two GCEs, um, albeit taken a year earlier. I got maths and technical drawing, uh, failed woodwork. I think I was away on the wrong day when... You know, the key to woodwork is yeah. getting it square. I think I missed that that lesson. Therefore, I struggled for the rest of it, the rest of the time. But um, I must have been fairly good to get those, yeah. especially the the, uh, the maths one. Well, it's probably stood you in good stead now that you've been te 12 years director of football down there at Exeter looking at spreadsheets. This is My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Tonight's guest is a man synonymous with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, Steve Perryman. I say synonymous, but Steve... Um, it's not a secret, but you're, you didn't support Spurs as a lad. You, you were from an era when everyone went to, every, to all kinds of grounds, and you're a West London boy. So, Basically, I wanted to kick the ball or watch the ball being kicked, and you couldn't sort of get your satisfaction out of the television at that time because it was only the odd, well, the cup final and the odd England international. So um, as a seven-year-old, I followed a nine-year-old brother and an 11-year-old brother to Brentford one week and QPR the next. And if, if I had to lean in to, towards one, it was probably QPR because they used to drag me along to away games. We used to go to Bournemouth and, and Southend by train to watch the the away games. So um, sometimes I get a bit of stick off Spurs supporters for not following Spurs all my life. But I'd say to them in jest, there's more than one football club in the world because if there wasn't, Tottenham couldn't win cups. They couldn't win leagues because... They wouldn't be competing against anyone. <laughs> no. So, um, but going back to the school days when I didn't sign that schoolboy form for Spurs, that allowed me in my last year at school to visit other clubs, to go on trial, to test. And um, so it came down to three. Um, QPR because it was local. West Ham, because remember this is 67, 66 World Cup, Hurstmore and Peters. I can forgive you the QPR thing, but now you're really on thin ice. Well, my oldest brother, Ted, um, a bit of a mentor, he said, you know, Academy of Football and all that. And uh, my dad wanted me to go to Spurs. So my dad won through and uh, I joined Tottenham. Delighted that I did. And probably the difference of of it all, and they all had good managers, and they all had good grounds, QPR worth the division. But it was uh, Bill Nicholson because of his straightforwardness, his honesty, his, his no frills, no no kidology, no spin, straightforward, gave it to you how you needed it given to you. And that, that appealed to me. So um, I was delighted that I, I made the right decision and... Um, West Ham would have been, it took me two hours journey to get to Tottenham from Northolt. So two hours before you, you train, twice a day, two hours at the end, I was leaving home at seven in the morning, getting home at night at seven, long days. But it must have been extraordinary for you, as well as Bill, Bill Nicholson being there, they still had, when you went there, and of course you were in the team very quickly, you made your debut at 17, they still had remnants of the double winning team as well as um, some of the best players I mean you, you walked into a Spurs team with Dave Mackay with Pat Jennings was just making his name with Jimmy Greaves what, what was it like Steve? Alan Gilzean mm -hmm. well it was a team of internationals and um, 
just to pay respect to that, in my first pre-season, the cameras came to the training ground at Chesantown to cover a pre-season game against Celtic, who, to be fair, were European champions. <laughs> 125,000 people attended that game. Spurs beat Celtic at Hampden Park. 125,000 people. What does that say about both teams? Amazing. So, um, Gilly was great. Uh, full of characters. Uh, as an apprentice, you weren't really encouraged to talk to them. I had one incident where, as a laugh, someone said, Steve, Dave Mackay wants to speak to you. Take it as read. I went to the home team dressing room, walked in, stood by Dave. He was doing his laces up, looked up. What do you want? Someone said, you want to speak to me? Speak to you? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> Get out of here. Don't ever walk in this dressing room again without knocking on the door. <laughs> that's a bit of discipline that's put into you. But you very soon learn, don't open your mouth, just take it all in. And you had all these great players to watch. If you weren't training, you could watch Pat Jennings saves. You could watch Alan Gilzean headers. You could watch Jimmy Greaves passing the ball into the corner on the net. It was what an education. Well, talk about your debut in just a little, little while because you say you were a kid, but um, you also, when the FA Youth Cup, as it's, I'm glad to see that it has come back into fashion, the FA Youth Club. We, uh, we understand how important it is. Spurs won that in 1970 with a team that included yourself, uh, Graham Soonis, among others. Yeah, unusually. Um, so I spoke about my first mentor, Ted, and my brother. Um, very good bit of information he gave me as a 14-year-old Ted. He said, you'll be a better player when you realise that you can see more than your teammate, not because you're a better player than him, not because he's a bad player, but he's got the problem with the ball and you could see what he should be doing with it. What advice that was to a 14-year-old. And that, I think, led me into sort of leading and captaincy and all of that. Now, with Sunas and Perryman in the same team, Neither of us were captain. I was surprised when you told me that. And I met the second uh, influence on my career, which was Phil Holder, good friend of mine, still is. Uh, he was one of a very large family from Kilburn. He had to fight his corner to get fed, to get his washing and ironing done. And, uh, of course, he was a couple of years more grown up than we were, albeit it was the same age. We were both a year older than Sunes. And um, Phil would say, for instance, we'd... I'd learned to drive first and I drove us in and back. I used to pick him up at Stonebridge Park Station on my way there. And um, he'd say to me, for instance, I'll, I'll pick a name out. Hmm. Mallory took the piss out of you yesterday. What do you mean? When you tackled him, he looked at you as if you was a piece of what the dog left there. I didn't notice, Phil. Well, he did. You make sure you nail him today. <laughs> so he was talking about you standing up for yourself against the first team players which you have to do the, the League Cup sorry the FA Youth Cup final in 1970 do you remember who was in goal for Coventry who Spurs beat David Icke I know David incredible Icke. isn't it yeah amazing he'd been a former guest on this programme actually and despite having some pretty wacky ideas about the world let's not beat around the bush about that a lovely lovely man who uh, for all the things he goes on about his belief about Liz and the rest of it, you get him talking about football. He loves football. He absolutely loves it. I uh, I actually met his daughter. Uh, I went to speak to a Spurs group on the Isle of Wight, and his daughter was part of that uh, 
Spurs Supporters Club and she's a very nice lady and spoke well of her dad and I passed on my regards. So um, those Coventry games, the finals, were such good games. Dennis Mortimer played for Coventry. What a good player he was. Well, went on to win the European Cup, of course. Absolutely. And um, that was a good group of people. We, we enjoyed playing together and uh, I learned a lot playing for that youth team. You made your debut, as I say, at 17, and but by the time you've won the, the Youth Cup, you're also an established first-team player because the next year you win your first of, I'm delighted to say for both of us, many, many honours when Spurs won the 1971 League Cup. What do you remember about the run to the final and the final there? Um, final against Aston Villa. Um, I had played at Wembley before because I, in my good schoolboy year, I ended up playing for... Ealing, Middlesex, London and England. So I played at Wembley in front of 100,000 screaming the old kids. Sc- the schoolboy international, used to, yeah, with all the, the howling, yeah. What a what an experience that was. And I only lived about 15 minutes from Wembley, so I drove past it every day. Uh, not at 15 years of age, I wasn't driving. No. But uh, So to go back to Wembley was great so soon and uh, probably naive, Steve. I didn't realise that this was a very special event. And uh, I played for a great club with wonderful players. And, um, you know, it was rightly so that we, to be credible, we needed to be winning things. And and we certainly did. Third division, Aston Villa, they were no mugs. Uh, Andy Lockhead, for instance, gave Mike England such a game. So um, good to win it and uh, celebrations and all that went with it. And very quickly about this one, but uh, Martin Chivers got two goals. We'll hear them in just a second. He got the two goals. I'm not wrong in thinking. I mean, I'm, this is not just a schoolboy crush. Is it? There was about two years between about 1972 and 1974 when Martin Chibbers was the best centre forward in Europe, wasn't he? I make you right on that. We would. Um, I, I thought I was hallucinating this, but he really was astonishing, wasn't he? Well, I think he struggled with injury before, and then he struggled after those two years. But but whenever we got the ball up there in that two-year spell, we almost didn't have to go up and support it as if he was going to lose the ball or he was going to cross shot and with maybe following the rebound. You just knew that it was going to happen. He was absolutely on fire. Uh, strong, powerful, quick. Just what you wanted for a centre-forward. North London won everything that year and we have to say that Arsenal were rather more greedy than Spurs. They won the FA Cup and uh, ama- amazingly for them... Um, and you were on the pitch, so I kind of blame you, won 11th. Um, they were allowed to win that game at White Hart Lane that allowed them to win the double. Um, I was in the ground, 52,000 people were. There were another 50,000 people outside the ground at White Hart Lane. You were one of only 22 people on the pitch. What was that like when Arsenal won that game? One Was it John Radford got the late goal? Yeah, I accept that blame. Um, was it Radford or Kennedy? It was Ray Kennedy, you're Ray absolutely... Kennedy. Were you, were you, sorry, let's do it again. Um, uh yeah, you were one of only 20... There were 100,000 people at the game, some inside the ground, some outside. You were one of the 22 people on the pitch when uh, Ray Kennedy's late goal gave that goal to Arsenal. I say, I blame the 11 of you. Well, intense rivalry, of course. Um, Tottenham being the team that held the double title, 60-61. How could we possibly let this go to our neighbours? Uh, they still had to win the cup after our game, mm-hmm. so that was the first leg of their Charlie George double victory. And all that, yeah. Charlie George, I'd played with Charlie in the under twenty threes under uh, Sir Alf Ramsey. Um, we were quite friends, and uh, I whacked Charlie after about five minutes, and he's laying on the floor, looking up at me, and he said, "Steve, is that how it's going to be?" 
I said, yeah, okay then. <laughs> so, so we then knew how we were going to carry on the rest of the game. And um, remember, we only had to score a goal. We didn't have to win that game to stop and win in the league. A nil-nil draw or a defeat for Arsenal were... were, were, were I think a 1-1 one, one yeah. draw would have suited. So right up to the last yes. kick... Nil-nil would have got Arsenal the title, but 1-1 one, one would not. The way Abs- Oh, OK, was, yeah, great. Absolutely. So if yeah. Spurs scored, they would have still stopped Arsenal in the title, Steve. Well, imagine if you want to become a hero overnight. Score that goal. Score that goal. And um, it just wouldn't happen. It, uh, they were... I thought they were a bloody good team. They were a very effective unit, 4-4-2. Two front men knew exactly where each other was. We was a good team as well, of course. But um wasn't to be. I I got, you know where Bill Nicholson lives down White Hart Lane? Mm-hmm. I got sort of in traffic outside his house about, so if it was 7.30 kickoff, we needed to report to the dressing room at 6.30. I would have been there about quarter to six and we did not move. And we didn't move for 15 minutes. And I got out of the car and walked to the stadium through all those crowds that you're talking about. Mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made it. If I'd have stayed in my car, <laughs> so I had to leave people in my car to drive the car, eventually get into the ground. They must have been late because the crowds were thronging. It was an amazing atmosphere and one that went against us on that day. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, you're listening to My Sporting Life here on TalkSport with me, Danny Kelly. And more importantly, my guest tonight, who, as I said, played 866 outfield games for Tottenham Hotspur, Steve Perriman. Steve, just want to very quickly reflect on something that happened early in your career and why. You started out as a kid as being a forward-going midfielder, a passer of the ball, a maker of chances. You were compared, I think, as a young player to Johnny Haynes. Um, You ended up very quickly being the defensive shield in the team, the midfielder who won tackles and scrapped and fought. How did that happen? Yeah, to describe that, I was an inside forward in the old system. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, 
football became 4-4-2. So I'm a central uh, midfielder and I get my chance in the team. Bill Nicholson took a chance and risked this 17-year-old in the... I think I'd only played about six reserve games. Um, it's early to get in the team, for any team, but a Tottenham Hotspur to get in as a 17-year-old, mm. that's quite special. So got my chance and it was obvious that I got my chance because the team had too many Chiefs and not enough Indians. They could all play with the ball, but no one could get the ball. So it was obvious to me when I got in there that my job was to run around. And actually, although I wasn't a tackler in the youth team or the or the reserves, of course I put my foot in. That was an era where if you didn't put your foot in, you're definitely not going upwards. So one, when I won a couple of challenges and tackles, because I'm so low, mm. I'm not the biggest, mm. I'm going in low, the whole of my body, I've got a is behind it. I've got a good technique to win challenges. Um, the crowd just went crazy. Well, it was obvious once I gave them that, I couldn't take it away. So I very quickly developed into a defensive midfielder. Um, remember at that time, Jimmy Greaves got uh, swapped or sold and to West Ham, yeah. to West Ham for Martin Peters. So the three of us were in midfield. Two internationals and me. Well, guess what? Martin Peters was the one who definitely attacked. Mallory was the one who attacked and defended. And I was the one who definitely defended. So I was a, a sort of a shield to the back four. You went on You went on to be, as I say, a defensive player for nearly a thousand games. Um, and um, we're going to hear about some. You only scored very rarely. Um, uh, but some of them were very important goals. We're going to hear about them in just a second. Do you ever regret playing your your whole career either eventually in defence but as a defensive player do, do, do you do you have dreams when you wake up and you're the, you're the 15 year old Steve Perriman again scoring goals and making goals well remember Ted my mentor wanted me to go to West Ham so he was particularly critical of the way my game developed he said very honestly which is why I think I had a long career because I was surrounded by honesty Bill Nicholson my brother Ted and mm. other people um you run about all day, you're always going to get picked, which is right, because there was a consistency about my mm -hmm. game. But your game's not developing. And so much so, Steve, I'm not going to watch you play anymore. Which he didn't watch me again from about 20, 21 to probably late 20s. That is pretty hard. That's hard. That's hard. But remember, this is the, the brother that gave me the important advice about how to be a captain sure. and how to play other people's games. So it's not, you know... But that's I, taking tough love a bit fast. Well, I, I say to young players these days, make yourself selectable. Make yourself selectable. So if I'm giving something to the team that they haven't got, of course I'm going to get selected. And by the way, as I used to say to Ted, Ted, who am I going to believe, Bill Nicholson or you? Hopefully I can please you both. But actually, if I'm going to please one, it's going to be the manager. So Spurs are, are a very good team in the early 70s. Um, and you, again, you're extraordinary because you're still so young, 20 years of age, whatever it was, when Spurs won the UEFA Cup in 1972. Then a very important competition indeed. Um, we'll talk about the final against Wolves. Of course, it was an all-English final. But the game where I think has gone into folklore is the semi-final against an AC Milan team that had been champions of Europe two years early. Uh, and the, the first game at White Hart Lane, Steve, not one of the rarities like London buses, a Steve Perriman goal, but two. 
two goals for you there and a two-legged victory for Spurs against AC Milan. What do you remember about all that? Well, to, 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 to tie the two things together about how my game changed mm. and these two fantastic goals They're against great AC goals. Milan. Yeah, you can see them on YouTube. They're great goals. When I got into the team, I was th the 11 shirt was thrown at me. I played early on number 11. All of a sudden, Jimmy Greaves has left and the clever older players didn't want to wear Jimmy Greaves' shirt. So naive Steve got heaped on with the, with the number eight shirt. I got letters from supporters saying, Steve, do you know you're wearing Jimmy Greaves' shirt? You don't even shoot. You don't even get any other, other the opposition off. Of course, they didn't quite realise that although I'm wearing number eight shirt, I'm a defensive midfielder. Mm -hmm. So to score those two goals was surprise like you can't believe. And um, I was lucky to get two shots a game, two shots a season. And I had two shots in that particular game, both both really well-struck goals. And probably because the way AC Milan defended in that era, it wasn't free-flowing football by any means. They could defend for their life and they put their body on the line. Um, we're probably going to only score from outside the box. I don't know if you know this, um, Kudicini's father was in goal. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. so I beat him twice. And um, a, a funny story after was that um, I always took my time. I, I needed to relax and stay longest in the shower and bath and everyone. You'd also run the furthest, Steve, so you're allowed well, to. Well, maybe. Yeah. I, I was absolutely shattered at the end of the game. So everyone's, I'm on my own in the dressing room. And I walk into a place of calm, which happened to be the the treatment room. Four beds in there. No one's in there. Half lights on. And I go and lay on a bed. And I'm thinking, Steve, you've had it off tonight. <laughs> what two great goals. I'm thinking these thoughts. In comes the doctor. Doesn't look at me. Walks across to the sink. Washes his hands. Wipes them. Adjusts his tie. Looks in the mirror. And says to the mirror... That Bill Nicholson is a genius. So there's no one else in the room. He must be talking to me. So I said, uh, but he wasn't looking at me. So I said, Doc, what do you mean a genius? Why, why do you say that? And he turned around and he pointed at me. He said, because he very nearly didn't pick you tonight. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I could have been arguably on the ceiling and now all of a sudden I'm on the floor thinking am I going to play the next game so uh, yeah you did play the game in the San Siro of course and uh, Spurs got through to the final I must say as a as a youngster at the final two-legged uh, Spurs won in Wolves and then there's a draw at White Hart Lane when I was on the pitch afterwards um, trying to touch the toe of Alan Mullery as he was paraded around the shoulder of Spurs players I didn't worry about the fact it was an English team but did it for the players was it disappointing that there was another English team in the final well, when we got back to the dressing room uh, after the AC Milan draw, mm. uh, Alan Mullery, wonderful goal. Um, great occasion in that fantastic stadium. All the noise and the firecrackers and fireworks and everything. Noise like you can't believe. Um, we got back in and it was relayed to us that Wolves had won over two legs and we were going to be playing Wolves in the final. Guess what? We're delighted to be in the final. It would have been nice had it been a a foreign team, of course. And, um, yeah. Do you know, in that era, what I learned? I learned that it's about getting to the finals and then winning. You don't have to play great in a final. You just have to win it. 
So Aston Villa, Norwich that you've left out, but I understand no, no. why. No, no, I know. Wolverhampton Wanderers uh, over two legs. They were unlucky. So, But we won those three games. You win the cup by getting there and then being part of the final and the all the bits that are going on behind the scenes and taking it in your stride. And we believe we could win. Probably Aston Villa, Norwich, Wolves didn't believe they could win those games and probably that made the difference. Yeah, you've mentioned the fact that Spurs also won another League Cup against Norwich City. They lost the 74 UEFA Cup final against a brilliant Feyenoord side over two legs. And what we'll discuss in the next period here on Talk Sports My Sporting Life is the mid-70s where things go a little bit less well for Spurs and results in them getting relegated but the seeds of a brilliant team come out of that. You're listening to My Sporting Life. I'm Danny Kelly and he... Well, you know, is he Steve Perryman? Um, Steve, you'll forgive me, and Spurs fans will have to forgive me. There's so much to talk about. I'll skip over the League Cup final in 1973. Suffice to say, Spurs won that. Um, they also lost the 74 UEFA Cup final to a brilliant Feyenoord side. I want to get on to the mid-70s, where um, Spurs, for whatever reason, started to struggle. Terry Neal joined the club. Bill Nicholson departed. Um, and after flirting with relegation in the, in the mid-70s, they eventually went down. What... what what happened in 1974, 75, 76? Why did the, a club that was winning European trophies find itself relegated? You have to realise, as, as big a club as Spurs was in those days, they probably made one, maximum two, big signings a year. So all of a sudden, Mike Ingram becomes available. Where's he going? And Bill Nick encourages him to come to Tottenham. Jimmy Greaves from Milan, and the way he, he put that team together. Of course, in the 60s, when Bill Nick was new to the job, he was bringing in more new players because the team was 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 going out of fashion. Hmm. So, um, very importantly, three players had to finish their career. Roger Morgan, with bad injuries. Jimmy Pierce and Peter Collins. So, in effect, we were three players light of where we should have been. Bill Nicholson was coming to the end of his time and decided to, to resign. Um, which happens to, to everyone. Uh, Bill Nick used to say, um, in a sort of crisis moment, he'd say to a team meeting, who's the most important people at this club? No one would answer because it's like a trick question. He'd say, I'll tell you who's the most important, the supporters. The supporters are never going to change their allegiance. They're with us from start to finish. You will leave. I will leave one day, but them supporters will never leave. That's why they're the most important. Of course, Bill Nick had to leave, as we've all done in our time. Hmm. So um, the club just stopped taking the best players for a position. And we were, t we were taking fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth best. And therefore, we went, we went downhill and we were not the article anymore. 1974-75, people forget Spurs were within one game of going down. An amazing night. Leeds preparing for the, for the final of the European Cup. Good job they were. Absolutely. Spurs managed to, score, to nick a 4-2 win, I think, at White Hart Lane. Did Cyril Knowles score twice that yeah. night? Oh, my goodness. Did Alfie, Cyril Knowles. Alfie Conn sat on the ball. Yep. Billy, Billy Bremner said, Steve, yeah. tell him. But what's interesting, I think, nowadays... Uh, if when you're relegated to the second tier of English football, it's like this massive disaster. And yet, when we met and I said to you, what do you think my favourite season of watching Spurs was? And you quite rightly said 1981-82 when they had an amazing team, nearly won four trophies. But very close running to that. And one I remember with fantastic uh, uh, excitement and fun is that save the year in the second division. You, you had, uh, Spurs had a decent team. 
Um, Glenn Hoddle was an 18-year-old genius in, in, the, in, the, in, in the wrong level. Yeah, and, emerging. And people will have to take my word for it. I can remember being in crowds of 6, 7, 10, 12, 15,000 away Spurs, Spurs fans. It was an incredible season. Well, I enjoyed that season as much as any, any I've ever played. I went into the back alongside the centre-half after the hurly-burly sort of rushing around How of a midfield player. How tall are you, Steve? 5'7", five, 5'8"? Five, eight? Five, eight, yeah. You're playing centre-half in the championship at 5'8". Yeah. And I was there to bring the ball out and set midfield players free. Neil McNabb, great, very good player. Um, Glenn Hoddle, of course, emerging. We had some wonderful players. And um, it was a shame that we had to go down a division. But actually, it was for the good. The club had to rethink itself White Hart Lane is a very tough stage to play on. The supporters know what they like, and they certainly know what they don't like. And the team that we were... Nothing's changed there, then. No. We were, the team that we were becoming was not good enough. And it was almost like we had to start again. And we did it by... We prepared, we prepared for the second division about the last four or five games of being in the top division, mm -hmm. but knowing we were going to go down. We went on two tours, very important tours, one to Norway, one to Sweden, end of season, pre-season. We got a style of play to get the ball to into midfield with quality. And, um, and what an amazing season. Well, look, um, Spurs were walking it. They looked like they were going to be champions for a long, long period. Then over Easter, they blew up, um, lost three, three or four games, I remember. We get to the penultimate game of the season, um, a home game against Hull City, and you, playing centre-half, the goals against AC Milan, very nice, very pretty. Well done, Steve Perryman. But the most important goal of your Spurs career, I think, comes that night because if Spurs, they had to win at Hull and get a result at Southampton. Sorry, at home to Hull. And you scored with about five minutes to go. Otherwise, it's going to be a nil-nil draw. Yeah, um, some would say it was a foul on the goalkeeper. Um, the one thing I've never lacked is desire. And uh, whether I was a you know, ball-playing inside forward or a winning midfield player you've got to have desire you know don't tell me Barcelona with all their ability have not got desire to play and to want to be winners so um, I pushed up uh, from the back um, we were obviously reining in crosses I think I jumped with a goalkeeper and maybe nudged him and put him off and the ball fell and yeah and it went so uh, so yeah the last day of the season Southampton um, and Spurs, if they both, if it was a draw, they'd both go up. I remember being in the crowd on a wonderful sunny day down at the old, beautiful old uh, Dell ground. Um, and you may not remember this, but I remember it distinctly. Not a cup final, but, uh, but the two teams walked out together. And I remember rubbing my hands together thinking, good, the fix is in here, um, until Alan Ball hit the post for them in the first minute. Well, what an occasion, what pressure. Um... If we'd have lost that... Do you well, remember it like that? Being yes. Because to me, it looked like a lovely nil-nil draw was played no, out. No chance. What a, what a waste of a season. What a waste of all that effort. And we did. We went and played teams off the field. And uh, with, with a, uh, Tottenham was starting to get their style back, albeit in a lower division. Of course, it mm. uh, should be a bit easier there. But, you know, Glenn was sort of pulling the strings in terms of her passing and her forward, forward running and stuff. So um, this was pressure. And, uh, you know, as a captain, I was a captain that led us down. I had played 42 out of 42 games that season. I must be partly responsible, a lot responsible. Keith was a new, naive, young manager, inexperienced. And, um, you know, together we got through it. Thank God the, the 
club stayed with Keith and me, for instance, and um, we worked through it and we got ourselves up with, with some style. And incredibly, I mean, it wouldn't happen in modern football, having been, re having been promoted back into the top level, the 1978 World Cup happens and Spurs go out and shock the world. We didn't buy foreign players in this country then and buy two of Argentina's World Cup winning team, including one very good player, Enrique Villa, and one absolute copper-bottom genius in the form of Ozzy Ardiles. Ozzy was on this show very recently, Steve, and we asked him what his um, recollections were of the kind of club Spurs were when he got there. Listen to this. Coming to talk about the, the team, we were a little bit disappointed, I would say, with the quality of, of, of the player. From, from our point of view, we had Glenn and Steve Perryman. The rest of the players were not up to the standard that it was necessary to survive. That is the truth, to be perfectly honest. We used to dominate the, the midfield. Steve was playing in midfield. It was Steve, Ricky, Glenn and me. But after saying that, we were playing half South American style, half English style. So this is why we had some serious, serious bad uh, results uh, at the beginning. But little by little, keep we starting to, to change the team and, and we're starting to be a force. You, you just made the cut there, Glenn and you. That's the lot as far as, the, uh, as Ozzy was concerned. I don't think you'd have played that clip to me if he hadn't mentioned my name. <laughs> uh, You're probably right, yeah. Big friends of Ozzy. Worked with him in Japan, of course. Yeah. Ricky was amazing, amazing character. Uh, not quite what we thought we'd bought from the little bit we saw of him in that World Cup. Mm -hmm. We saw most of Aussie and saw a wonderful player he was. How amazing for us to sign that quality of player. I think, do you know what I think? Tottenham signed them because they were cheap for the ability that they had. Nothing changed there, right? Nothing <laughs> changes there. And uh, remember, Tottenham had, had, had struggled to fight off other clubs signing good players. That's why we were taking second best. And uh, all of a sudden, we put ourselves back on the, the stage of being a glamour club because the reaction to these two players was phenomenal. The, the media interest, um, the supporters that followed. Of course, they were mm. following in the Division 2 days, as you say. Now they had something to cling to, these, these Argentinians. And the mountains of ticker tape out of the home games for Spurs, which the Spurs fans have picked up from in Argentina. Yes. Just the whole ground covered in a confetti of newspaper. Incredible. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to live up to that, you know, yeah. that, that billing. And I remember the first home game. Uh, we got a very good away draw at Knott's Forest or I think the champions uh, Ricky scored the goal and then the homecoming to Aston Villa at home we lost 4-1 I think so all the ticker tape welcome was all sort of for the sake of it but um, these were two great players Ozzy said to me one day Stevie I am the most intelligent player in this team so I said how do you make that up he said because Glenn Hoddle need to think he's the best player so I let him think He's the best player. But really, I know I am the best player. <laughs> and the Spurs are a decent enough mid-table team up to 1981. Then you win those two FA Cups. 81, of course, is one of the most revered moments in, in, in FA Cup history. The whole drama surrounding the two games, the conflict with the Falklands, uh, Ricky's winner and all the rest of it. Talk to me about 81, if you can. Yeah, I remember we'd gone through the uh, depression of a relegation. Uh, mm -hmm. come back out the other side of it with promotion, sign the Argentinians. It wasn't quite as good as what everyone thought it would be just by bringing in two new players, but the team was building. And um, 81 is where it started to happen. And I'm saying any good team needs to win its first trophy. Once you get the first trophy out the way, 
then the confidence flows and it goes on to other things as it did in the the early 80s um great to be involved back at Wembley you know Pat Jennings left Tottenham um rightly or wrongly probably wrongly and he had appeared uh three out of three years for Arsenal in cup finals and I'm thinking mm, is it ever going to be my chance early success with the league cup finals that you've spoken about and then it happened two two finals in two years didn't you put Pat Jennings out in the third round Apparently so, yeah. You've reminded me of that yeah. one, of Third course. Third round yeah. was, was um, at White Hart Lane, Spurs, Arsenal. Um, the Human League were number one, and the whole crowd, all 50,000 of them, sang Don't You Want Me before the kickoff. I remember it distinctly. Is that right? And then Amazing. we put Arsenal out. Very Amazing. good. Yeah. Well, he should never have left, that's for sure. So uh, we get Does to... he believe that? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think he was very upset to leave. And um, he's got his own story about mm. that. But um, Sure. But, yeah. So... Um, we get to Wembley, uh, fantastic uh, semi-final, almost two legs, but a replay at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, Thomas, the referee, gave an unbelievable penalty against Glenn, last dying seconds. So it led to a replay at Highbury. Tottenham supporters took over the North Bank and the South Bank and whatever that night. Uh, wonderful victory, and uh, we got to play against Manchester City. Uh, I should mention about those two semi-finals. It's going to come up in the news now. Of course, I was actually uh, playing football in Mallorca, believe it or not, for the first game. When I got back, all loads of people who had been in the game told me that they were in the Leppings Lane end, yep. and, and that they'd been in a terrible crush there. And we all know what happened a few years later. Very much. The so. second game, you're absolutely right. I got back in time to the, the second game. Was that? My God, was that Highbury? Um, let's talk to Stuart Robson about the state. He was an apprentice at Arsenal at the time. Um, and um, he says that you people smashed up the dressing rooms and he spent the next three days repairing them. I don't think that's quite right, to be <laughs> honest. But anyway, if that's what he said, yeah. he would know more than me. But um, we certainly celebrated after, but, yeah. but outside of the uh, of the Highbury bit. Yeah. But um, terrific, terrific night. Um, when I watched those... Two Garth goals that night. Did he score twice? No, Ricky got two, didn't he? Ricky got two and, and Garth got one. But when yeah. I watch it, I think it's been speeded up because he was so quick onto that ball and then put it away. So good victory. We were odds-on favourites to win against uh, uh, a Man City team that had been struggling. So uh, John Bond had really changed the team around and um, it was really billed as the footballers against the runners. And... It was anything but that. They sort of outfought us, outplayed us, and really deserved to win that first game. Mm -hmm. And we got out of jail with a Glen free kick that went in off Tommy Hutchinson and um, at least gave us a chance to go to a, a, a replay that was more in keeping with the football style that we we come to know and love. For instance, first game at Wembley, the, the chap came from the FA and he told us that we were not allowed to warm up on the pitch. We were only allowed out on the pitch to look at it between 2.01 and 2.04. What's that all about? It was, it was like it was a whole big world event and we were just a small part of it. Guess what? We're playing at Wembley. This is, this is the biggest day of our life. Anyway, it was as if sort of the, the pomp and ceremony overtook the real the realness of being a, a cup final, particularly disappointing. We had to go to attend a, a club banquet after. No one wanted to be there. Bill Nick, in his wisdom, 
took our heads off with criticism and uh, maybe the reason why we placed it well in the second game. A great a great Spurs team at that time, one of whom, a great friend of yours, joins us online now, centre-back at the time in that team, Paul Miller. Hello, Paul. Good evening, chaps. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, we are we're, we're talking about some great football matches, but we need to talk about Steve Perriman, the man and the player. I know you're I know you're friends with him, but you'll be neutral. How important was Steve to that a to Spurs getting back out of the second division and and b to the team that went on to be so successful in the early eighties? Well, for a start, I can't be neutral about the skipper. I know he's, he's the greatest uh, captain we've ever had at the club. Uh, most games. And, uh, and by the way, you know, never missed any games either. And a superb leader and a great influence on all the young lads who came through there. So um, <laughs> you can't ignore that. It was uh, fantastic. Some of the times, Paul, I think, um, Steve, because he was a combative player, it gets overlooked just what a good player he was as well. Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember Steve played a long while in midfield um, between two great players, Mullery and Peters, for, for a hell of a while. Um Probably didn't do him any favours in those days because I think the servant made him do all the work, a lot of running. But Steve was a fully field player, and he then he was he played sweeper uh, at the back when we got promotion from the second division and uh, had a great season, bringing the ball out and whatever. And uh, I think, but when he played right back, I think that was his best position. I think if you look at all the all the chaps pick their greatest set of Spurs teams now, and Steve Steve walks in at right back, which is a fair old compliment because we've had a few good ones, uh, and not least in the double side and. Uh, you know, with Glenn in front of him, he, you know, he served Glenn and Ozzy all, all day long in the great passes, and uh, he was a terrific player. And what, what kind of a bloke was he to have around the club? He was baby-faced assassin. <laughs> he could he could slaughter you with four words, let alone the other team. And, I'm, and I've obviously got dozens of stories about various winners and players over the years that that brought the wrath of his, uh, his tongue, as well as a few coaches and managers on the sideline. Because Steve obviously playing wide, Got to have a lot of banter with the, uh, the, the the opposition, and also the supporters. And I've got to tell you, he gave as good as he got. He's not clever. Steve was very bright and clever, so he could do could do clever conversations. And you uh, know, I used to have a lot of a lot of banter between us and the, and the other players. That's when it was all, uh, all all those days when you could speak and have a go at each other. Uh, before it was, before we got over, overcrowded with foreigners, they would understand what we say nowadays. Paul, listen, it's impossible almost. This question, next question, I understand how unfair it is, of a career of 866 games for an outfield player, I mean, just extraordinary at any football club. Um, but if you could pick one memory, good or bad, about Steve, of your time playing and being around Steve Perriman, what would it be? Um, I think, uh, oh God... It's all right, Paul. We'll take out the arm in an army. It's going to be pretty yeah. cool. Just have a little think about it. Is, it, is, yeah, this, I mean, is this something that, that sums Steve up as a, as a man and a player? Yeah, I think I think for me as well, one that's come to mind is when he got suspended for the UEFA Cup second leg uh, with a diabolical decision over in Belgium that the referee gave against it, which meant he missed the final with the second leg. But you'd never believed it was Steve. He was in dressing room. He was in, you know, he was at the training ground, geeing us all up and being right behind us. And... Uh, I was, you know, celebrating as well afterwards because uh, he only, the only game he'd missed. Um, so that was typical of Steve being the club man and, and the captain that he is and, and the great personality he is. Um, as far as games are concerned, he, I mean, Steve was just Mr. Consistent. He, he very, very rarely, I can't remember having a bad game, to be honest. Um, training was superb and taught us all good lessons in training as well about good habits. Um, but, you know, that was, that was one of the signs. Obviously, I think I think when we won the cup, that was a great occasion, and uh, when Steve picked it up, and I know how proud he was, and uh, it, meant, it meant a lot to him. He'd been there before. 
with the League Cups in the, in the previous era. But I know this one was special, and uh, well, it was special for all of us, the end of the Cup final and the way it was won. And uh, so I think that's that's the big thing about Steve. I remember this, the Cup final and obviously the US Cup final. Well, Paul, listen, thank you very, very much indeed for just giving us a flavour of your time playing um, with the great Steve Perriman. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers, cheers, chaps. Cheers, Skip. Bye, mate. Thank you. You were nearly in tears there, hearing somebody talk positively about you, Steve. Fantastic. Mm. You, I, uh, you've literally got tears in your eyes. One of the good men, Paul Miller. Um, I'm not sure he was always the favourite of the crowd, but no. you wanted to play with him. You wanted him in the team. He would put his body on the line. He'd put his body in the way. He would do anything he could to stop that ball going in the net. He loved, he still loves Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, he put his heart and soul in it. And uh, he wanted to win as much as any player I've ever seen. I mean, obviously, the 81 final is remembered as a great game, but it's also remembered particularly for Ricardo Villa's fabulous winning goal for Spurs. And yet, um, it hadn't started well for him. He'd been substituted in the first game. And I think, you know, I think people were worried about him. Yes, um, trooped off, head down, head bowed, uh, walked around the dog track, down straight down the tunnel into the dressing room. Um, being a team team person, I actually, as captain, I didn't like that. Um, thought that he had the ump of being substituted and, you know, throwing his toys out the pram, it, it took him 10 minutes to get around the edge of the pitch as well. It was an ongoing display of petulance, uh, wasn't it? Absolutely. Well, it wasn't, or, or dis- it wasn't petulance. No, it, it was, was, it was downcast, utter, whatever it was. Utter disappointment with how he played. Um, live on television back to Argentina, so I understand. And at the end of it, maybe I misinterpreted his body language and stuff, but Keith said to me, as he always did, a certain aspect of the game, and he said... Steve, would you pick Ricky for the replay? I said, not a chance. And he said, well, I'm telling you, he's playing. So well done, Keith. That's what management's about. He read the situation. He read how disappointed he was. He knew that Ricky was going to put extra in to that second game to make up for his disappointment uh, at the first performance. And didn't he answer that? Didn't he answer my, my doubts by... It's two goals, two goals. We all talk about the, the second one being the marvellous goal that it was, but it, people forget that he scored the first one as well. 82, another victory for Tottenham. Magnificent to retain the trophy. Two really bad games against Queen's Park Rangers. Poor, very poor. Um, don't like saying that against QPR, but it's almost as if two managers were sort of out trying to outthink each other. And we, Terry we, Vandals, we, of course. Yeah, we cancelled each other out. So, um, yeah, particularly, again, you look back at the, we won the cup in '82. No one says it was a bad game, but it no. was. So, um, but led us on to this purple patch of of good results, good wins, proper team. We'd had a, a fantastic season. We it promised so much. Lost the league cup final, having we're leading with ten minutes to go. Eighty seventh minute, I think Liverpool to, scored. To be absolutely fair, Liverpool may have been the better team, and I'm speaking yeah, as best I can here. But we should have gone two up. We should have gone two up before they equalised. Uh, Archie missed a, a chance, which was very unusual. And um, we were going for it in the league and we were going for the Cup Winners' Cup. Got knocked um, out in the semi-final. Robbed in Barcelona. Did Mark yeah. Falco have a perfectly good goal chalked off? Uh, that was Real Madrid. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Real Madrid. So um, people talk about um, changing the team and resting players. I played 66 games that year. I played 42 out of 42 league games. And I played the last 10 league games in 23 days. 
Wow. Because of a bad winter and because of success on the field with replays and stuff. So, um, Let yeah. me ask you about that, Steve. I mean, I know we've got a million things to cover. You played, I mean, 866 outfield games. I look at, I'm looking down the record here. Most seasons, 40, 41 or 42 league games. How many of those games did you play carrying an injury, carrying a niggle, the way that players don't do now? No one ever asked you if you was injured. No one ever asked you if you were tired. You just got on with it. I think today's players are sharper, fitter, stronger, more physically able. We had the odd player like Martin Chivers who was a, a real physical specimen. Uh, but most of us weren't. Um, but I tell you what, we were more sturdy. We were sturdy and we ran through sand and mud and water and our legs were strong and our muscles were strong and guess what we played do you remember when Liverpool used to win the title with 14 players yeah and, play, how, and played 70 games in the course of the season how could that be how could, how could that happen today one of the things I mustn't miss out in the course of this is that the 82 season they got Spurs won the cup they were close in other trophies we talked about that but you um, and it's very unusual for a player who wasn't a star of England or something like that you were footballer of the year how important was that to you Yes, I um, jokingly say that I didn't really fancy um, football journalist opinion opinions much, but that year I thought they got it just about right. I suppose some people sort of veered against it um, because I wasn't the star type player, of course not. Um, I think it was a they'd voted for me because of consistency, because of loyalty, because of captaincy, leadership. You roll all those things into one. Yeah, I probably did deserve it. But, you know, perhaps there wasn't another star performer that year. Is there a trophy? Do you get to keep a trophy? Very much so. Do you know yeah. where it is oh, now? Oh, for sure. It's at home, pride of place. And um, and you look at the list of the players that have won that trophy. Bobby Charlton and, oh, and the, such and like the, the George one, Best. The ones Pat who are Jennings, still winning it. Gareth Bale, Dave McKay. Yeah. Wow. So um, it was that night that I won it. It's always the Thursday before the cup final, QPR match. Um, I was sat on the top table waiting to get the award to then go back to the team hotel. Sat next to Ron Greenwood. He said, Steve, I'm going uh, to give you a cap. I'm going to pick you to play. I'm going to pick two squads, one to Finland, one to Iceland. You're going to do me a favour and be part of the 40 and you're going to go and you're going to get a cap. Um, but trust me, you're not going to the World Cup. Remember, this was 82. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful and I, I received the trophy. I'd said in a few words and got back to the team hotel. And a few weeks later, I, um, uh, well, a week later, I'm in the, the office and Glenn Hoddle's reading his call-up letter for the international team. There's 40 players. I know I'm in it because he's, the he's manager's told, you, told yeah. me and it's in the, in, the, in the press. But there's no letter for me. So the lady secretary phoned for me and the, the FA apologised the lady said I'm sorry we forgot okay <laughs> so um, anyway so I um, take Glenn's uh, letter and, and copy it and react to those instructions and a report to a, a North London hotel where we're all meeting first man to meet me is Ron Greenwood shakes my hand says Steve really sorry about the letter okay no problem um, Steve I'm taking all the squad to Cambridge United tonight because there's a, a sponsored orchestra on the pitch right. to raise money and we're all going to go and I promise players are going to be there and sign autographs um, but you don't have to go so I said well what am I going to do if I don't go oh no you're welcome please come okay so I'm thinking hold on no letter 
Don't bother You really to that. are out on the limit. Steve. Anyway, so eventually, at the meeting, and I'm told which squad I'm in. I'm obviously in the lesser of the two squads. I go to Iceland, led by Bobby Robson. And um, for whatever reason, I think Bobby called me the... Paul Miller used the words in his, his little piece there that I was... Bobby Robson called me the baby-faced assassin. And apparently I was responsible for all the bad feeling between Ipswich and Tottenham. Guess what? No one else knew there was any bad feeling. No. <laughs> so um, he hardly spoke to me. He put me on with very few minutes to go. I thought it was a complete wind-up. And eventually stood on the touchline with me, uh, put his arm around my shoulder like he's my mate, and said, Steve, I want you to go on and man-to-man -man mark the blonde one. <laughs> I said, Bob, they're all blonde. <laughs> anyway, so it felt like a backhanded cap. With regard to I me, bet you, I bet you're glad you have it now, Steve. Yes, of course. For your career, not I played one game for England, even if it's only 20 minutes in Iceland. Yeah, in general, I think I was rated as a, uh, a jack of all trades, master of none. That was because I changed positions. I changed positions to play where it was best for my club and the manager to pick me to play in a certain position, even though it sometimes didn't quite suit me to be that, as my legs were going, go back in midfield, etc., or play right back against a, a tall left winger. And um, so, do you know what? Would I be rather known as a loyal Spurs servant or an England international? Spurs every day. Of course, it's Spurs that provide the next highlight in your career. When in, I mean, this is I'm incredible because of the longevity of you. You're in the team that wins the UEFA Cup in 1972, which seems like a million years ago. But the 84 victory over Anderlecht seems like a very modern thing to me. Perhaps because I was, you know, in there and the ground is the same shape as it is now and all the rest of it. Um, that was an extraordinary campaign as well. And that final. Of course, a great heartbreak for you because it was two-legged final and you missed the extraordinary game at White Hart Lane. Yes, especially as, you know, when I'm asked did I enjoy the, the 70s team, which was an excellent team, or the 80s team, it has to be the 80s team because I was part of building that team. I, yes. was, I was captain of that team. Keith Birkinshaw gave me licence to change tactics, etc., etc., And I integrated the Argentinians into the team and... I think helped Glenn Hoddle's game, for instance, by keep giving him the ball. So I was I was more than just a player in that team. I was probably worth one and a half players, whereas probably in the seventies team I was three quarters of a player, if you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. So um, particularly galling to miss the second leg, especially as it was the worst decision I've ever seen to, by a referee to give a yellow card in the first leg, in um, in Belgium. Um, that was a very good game as well, so I'm proud to be part of that. So I missed the, the second leg. It happens. Get on with it. Um, but proud of the team, the, the way they played that night. It was a victory for homegrown talent. And it's obvious that, that uh, Tony Park saved the penalty. But there was all sorts of homegrown heroes that night. Yeah, and um, the penalty you saved was from uh, Ida Good Johnson's dad, actually, who missed the, the, the last penalty for Andrew, who were a tremendous team. Enjo uh, Shifo was in that team, for instance. Um, I can remember exactly where I was in relation to the penalty. How did you watch the penalty shootout? Where were you? I think I was on the, the bench with uh, Keith. Not that I was given an opinion or whatever, but I'm a captain and you cannot stop your voice, whether you're playing on the field or off the field. So I believe you can help a player to understand if he can turn or not with your, with your voice, albeit in very loud crowd noise at the time. 
So um, I was backing them all the way. And do you know what made me proud that night? Uh, Danny Thomas missed the penalty. Very important penalty that could have cost us the game. And the crowd chanted his name all the way back to the halfway line. So you imagine now you're another Spurs player waiting to take your penalty. And you're nervous. If you miss... We're going to lose this great occasion live on telly in front of all those supporters. And you're going to have that UEFA Cup medal to your to your name. And they're chanting a player who's missed the penalty. They're chanting him all the way back to the halfway line. I think it must have took the pressure off and uh, probably said to the Andalek players they were wasting their time. Well, it was a, a, I mean, I can only speak for myself, feeling the ground shaking underneath me um, as the events unfold that night. Um, another highlight of an extraordinary career at Tottenham Hotspur. Everything comes to an end, but 19 years at Spurs. Why Why eventually did you leave the club? Well, I suppose my legs ran out after 19 years and so many games, and you can imagine how many training sessions. I didn't miss many games through injury, and I think that actually all takes its toll because sometimes you're not quite right to play. Sorry to jump in here. Can I, can I give you my observations? I remember watching you play throughout my teenage years and into my adulthood. Um, and I, I always use you as an example, and I hope I'm not being disrespectful here, of you can tell the, the, the elasticity of the human body just gives out because you went from being an absolute dynamo of a player to a chap who was, who was struggling to keep up in about, in about six months. Is that well, fair? Be, yeah, because your, your brain takes over the older you get and your body's not quite what it was. And this is where experience counts for, for a lot. And you're doing more talking and less running. And of course, I, I took great pride in the the sort of captaincy element to my job. Um, but Tottenham Hotspur being a top club has to think about the, the product on the pitch. So sentiment really goes out the window. Um, I felt I deserved a two-year contract. Um, Mr. Scholar didn't believe so and probably was proven right. I did go and do a job for Oxford United mm -hmm. and help them stay up. In actually, the top division again. In the yeah. top division with yeah. 6,500 uh, capacity stadium there. Um, but that was like a one-off. You know, yeah. when I when I got then had a pre-season, I'm with a new club, Oxford. And um, whereas Tottenham trusted me implicitly because I used to play games, I didn't feel I could say to the Oxford staff, leave me out of this one. I'm not right today. Uh, so I did everything. I didn't want to be treated special, albeit coming from, you know, mm -hmm. off the back of a great career. So um, very quickly then my legs gave way at Oxford and I went to be player assistant manager at Brentford. Had a great time there. Uh, joined Frank McClintock. Uh, enjoyed working with Frank. Frank left after about six months, I think. And I took over the job and uh, enjoyed my time at, at Brentford. Uh, eventually on to Watford. And you meet all sorts of interesting chairmen in those sort of jobs. Uh -huh. And chairmen's have been a you know particular sort of bugbear to me. Um, and I eventually got invited back by Aussie. He'd been given the Tottenham job, and I joined rejoined Spurs. Well, we should talk. I think um, you, you mentioned your managerial experience at Brentford um, and at Watford. But your your the, the highlights I think of your managerial career are, are White Hart Lane, and then later in Japan. At Spurs, you're your assistant to Ozzy Ardiles, and you, of course, uh, were part of the uh, invention of the infamous, now infamous, Famous Five team. Sure. Perhaps um, the most attacking team ever picked in the Premier League. Probably. Um, <laughs> I have to say it's the biggest mistake of my life. Not to join Ozzy. That wasn't a mistake. No. Not to join... 
Tottenham Hotspur and all that meant to me. But to join Tottenham Hotspur under the guidance of the then chairman, Alan Sugar. Um, this was a different club to the one that I knew for 19 years, where the manager was in total charge, leading from the front, caring about how the money was spent and keeping his eye on everything, including the team and developing players mm -hmm. and all of that. It's a serious, absolutely serious football club. I felt incredibly sorry for Ozzy because he had no backup. He had no support, in my opinion. That's my mm -hmm. opinion. Sure. Um, the way that, that Mr. Sugar and his people were running that club, and you have to talk about, you know, the wonderful businessmen, and I would listen to them about business as much as you want to speak to me. I'm a listener. I take instructions. Great. When those sort of people want to tell you how to think about football, then no one's got enough money to do that. Um, I'm sorry for Aussie because I'm telling you, Aussie Ardiles, forget about the front five, forget about um, you know him getting the sack there. He's the most incredible football man in the dressing room I've witnessed. He should be a manager in England or should have been a manager in England. And I think the sugar years cost Aussie his reputation. He got put in a category by the press of uh, his teams can't defend. I said in a statement when Aussie got the sack that you press people have helped this wonderful talent, talented manager get the sack. And the next time England don't qualify for a tournament, you'll be talking about England players are too ordinary. They don't try the special things. They can't open up defences. And here was a manager allowing players freedom to play. And you've nailed him. You've absolutely nailed him. So, um, very serious subject. I didn't like uh, the Tottenham Hotspur run by Sugar. I have to say it cost me... Uh, my love of both Tottenham Hotspur and football and anyone that can do that to Steve Perryman by Christ I'm used to the Bill Nicholsons of the world the people leading clubs trying to do it right when you cut the water off the bus for the players going up to an away game and back again when you cut the water from those players who you're paying thousands of pounds a week and rightly so Klinsman deserved every penny he got what a professional what a man and being begrudged a bottle of water by Christ if that's top business then that's not for me so when I eventually left Spurs Ozzy got the sack and then I got the sack two weeks later I was actually a relieved man that's a, that's I was a terrible happy, thing to hear I was happy to leave that club this club that had been my life was my I thought I I I drunk I ate Tottenham Hotspur of course, not before I was 15. I'm a West Londoner. But afterwards, when I joined that club, I was totally, totally in love with that club. And I lost everything because of the way that it was being run. And um, just, it, it, for me, it became a, not a good place to be. Not a good football vibe. Uh, I thought the the um, the spirit of the club ebbed out, the, out of the the doorways of Tottenham because it was not run with any sort of care 
Um, I remember the day when uh, the Arsenal manager and his assistant wanted us to come and scout us or whoever we're playing against, and they were told they could only have one ticket. Well, guess what? Guess what? When me and Ozzy want to go to Arsenal and judge a team, be it the Arsenal or their opponents, we're going to be given one ticket. We set new rules of of being... I got, I got asked to go up to... Uh, Claude Littner's the chief exec's office one day and he's on the second floor and he pointed down behind him, behind his desk, down to the car park area and he said, what's that down there? I said, that's the car park. Yeah, I know it's the car park. And what is that down there in our car park? And when I walked across to the window, I saw that it was the Barnet FC minibus. So I said, well, if you know it, that's the car park, I suggest you know it's, you can read as well. That's the Barnet FC minibus. Barnet FC led by Ray Clements, an ex-great player of this club, who's leading his team, not been able to train properly because of the, uh, the weather conditions. And he's asked me, as assistant manager of Tottenham, could they train in our indoor ball court? I checked it with the community, I checked it with the youth, I checked it with the reserves, I checked it with everyone. No one was using it, and I said yes. And he said... So who's getting paid for that then? As if I was. Do me a favour. I need money like that, like a hole in my head. So um, these are the things that were going on. This is what's happening behind the scenes. I think they were cutting Aussie's ground beneath him. The power of the manager was sadly, sadly weakened. And um, the players understand that. And therefore the heart went out of the performances and that cost Aussie's job. Have you met Sugar since? No, got no interest to meet Mr. Sugar. Do you? Are you, on, are you uh, Steve? I don't think you are. Are you on Twitter? No. You know he still tweets out his views on every Spurs performance after every game. Fantastic. I would listen to his opinions on business, although there were certain business aspects of uh, of Tottenham that were not right. They were petty. Um, I think if Mr. Sugar had had a meeting with the, with a the whole staff, including the players saying, look, times are tough. We're going to have to make cutbacks. We're going to have to make savings. So I may cut too deep. Just hang in there. It's done for the right reasons. Do you know what? Everyone would have followed him. No, he wanted to carry through the fact that we were a big club and we weren't. We were coming, becoming smaller by the minute. And um, I, I've had a couple of phone conversations with him since. Uh, especially off the back of what I wrote about the club when I'd had success in Japan. Mm -hmm. He didn't look like what I wrote. Listen, Mr. Sugar likes to call the spade a spade. He doesn't like it when he's called a spade, unfortunately. And uh, he would call me a liar to say the things I'm saying, but it's the truth. Steve, we're running towards the end of the programme. So many, so many more things I want to get through. And I think it would be wrong not to talk about your time in Japan. Five years managing in Japan, a very unusual situation for somebody from these islands and very successful time as well. How do you look back on that? Just an unbelievable experience. I, I've said about lost my love of the game. I rekindled it in Japan because they were such serious football people, albeit a new profession. Um, to rejoin Aussie and try and prove people wrong because it obviously didn't work at Tottenham. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, new, new culture, getting used to everything. For six months, I think we all wanted to go home every day. Then we grew into it. Um, we had some a terrific club. 
Zespulse. Zespulse. Really. Shimizu. Shimizu Zespulse. Yeah. Really good players. Listened. About six of them took uh, English lessons as soon as we arrived. And they wanted to learn and they just sucked the knowledge out of you. And we were there as Aussie. The Their work rate is extraordinary, Japanese people, isn't run it? Run and run and more run. But don't take away the technique because they could play. So um, this was a brand new club that had been only in existence for three years. Um, hadn't won anything. And Aussie manager, me as assistant. We had a shadow manager below us, Oki-san, nice man who worked for the company. Mm -hmm. It's my company. It, they didn't call it their club, they called it my company. And um, we learned so much and we laughed so much. Those three years together, me and Ozzy, we would never laugh so much in our life. And um, great place, we made players. We, we ended up with six Japanese players in the World Cup squad. Uh, we were successful. Ozzy won the league, but uh, lost it on goal difference. When I took over, Aussie went to uh, Croatia and my team then, built by Aussie and myself, um, uh, in the fifth year, we won the championship, which was great. We won the Asian Cup Winners' Cup and um, we were one goal away from qualifying for the World Club Championship, you know, the year that mm. Man United didn't play in the, FA, didn't play Cup, in the no. FA Cup. So we were on a roller coaster ride full of respect all the things I've mentioned before about the way Tottenham was going under Mr. Sugar, you were just allowed to run and manage that team. And you got back to football ethics, football basics, and the rest took look after itself. Probably the first time I've ever been to a club and told them, an Aussie, we told them to stop spending money, like home, uh, home hotel stays for home games. No, we want them to sleep in their own bed. Um, their first camp we went on was to Hong Kong. They took the whole club, the whole club there. We said, why is he here? Why are they here? In future, no, we want the football group to go. And, um, and they had about 50 professionals and there's no way you had 50 professionals good enough. So we sort of shifted out half of that playing squad and um, ended up making the club money. It was great because all the other clubs were owned and run by big corporations, Mitsubishi, Yamaha, etc. Toyota, Toyota. Yeah, cool. And ours, ours was a, uh, they needed one more club for the league. And so they granted the license to this particular football area where they'd produce players uh, because football had started in that area 10 years before anywhere else. But no big company. So we were owned by the community. And we were like a test. We were a model for if football could survive just on getting people through the gate. Steve, you're a working class boy um, from uh, Northolt. Northolt. Um, how did you how did you find the Japanese lifestyle? Unbelievable. Um, we took a six month old daughter there. Uh, we had another daughter while we were there. I had two stepchildren with me as well. We were in a pokey little flat. Eventually, we moved into a proper place. But these were all the sort of problems. When you get home for training, your wife's saying, this is no good, we've got to change this, we've got to do that. Fair play to her, Kim, my wife. She learnt Japanese in 18 months. Very respectful. Do you speak? No, no. I've got some chotomati kudasai. i got the, the terms off, mm. but I can't put them together. Right. And um, the players were just a dream to work with. Everything you tried to do with them, they attempted, they tried their best. 
And Ozzy spoke it great. He told everyone that we were the fastest moving, fastest passing team in Japan. And at times we weren't, but the players believed him and eventually they became that. And we got success and other teams had bigger names. Dunga was the captain of the our nearest rivals. And um, Wenger was at... Yeah. Uh, was at... Uh, Grandpa's Nagoya. And um, it was... It was a joy to behold. We had so much fun there. We created a team that could play and pass and move and run and create and entertain. And um, great. Not by contrast, but a very different experience. The last 12 years of your life, you've been director of football at Exeter City. Now, when that first started, I thought, well, Exeter, of course, they would want a great football man like Steve Perryman in there. And I thought it might be a, a five-week wonder You've been down there for over a decade. Yeah, I went down there for uh, the lifestyle, for the area. Not necessarily for Exeter City, but I still wanted to remain in football. Um, I have to say, I've got no ego where football's concerned. Um, It didn't worry me if people were saying Steve's joined a conference club, because that's where they were. Um, I'm just happy for my messages to get across to young players. We can make players in Exeter, in Devon. And we've sold some very successfully, won to the Premiership last year. And um, I suppose I did well enough in Japan to get some money behind me. Obviously, I'd had a long career. Get some money behind me, and I never had to listen to a a so-called wealthy businessman to tell Steve Perriman what he should be thinking about football. That was never going to happen again. It certainly doesn't happen at Exeter. Exeter's a club that's owned by its supporters. It's a very serious football club in its own way, although it's underfunded. You know, that that's well documented. Um, we have to turn one pound into 150 when we spend it, be it on an air flight up to Morecambe or a new ice machine for the players. And um, we take it very seriously. And we've got a great manager, Paul Tisdale, and I enjoy working with him. And I've had a ball and I've been down in Devon now for 10 years, living there. Great lifestyle, and um, yeah, I'm happy well, to be Paul there. Tisdale, Paul Tisdale, of course, um, wears these spectacular array of hats, possibly to hide a bald head, whereas you, by comparison, have still got the exact Steve Perryman thatch you've always had. Yeah, when people ask me what I do for Tis, <laughs> you know, what advice do I give him? Well, obviously, I give him hair products advice. And, <laughs> and sometimes I'm on the phone to him down on the touchline. I sit upstairs and they say, what what you're talking about? And I'm saying, well, Tiz's wife phoned me and wants him to take two pounds of potatoes home uh, after the game. But um, very good working relationship, built on honesty, built on straight talking, built on having no ego. Um, Like I said, when I first started helping at Exeter, it was a a manager called Noel Blake. I said, no, you've really got to want me to help you for me to actually do this. I live a long way from London. And um, if you don't, tell me or ask me to do something I'm not doing it so I can't ever be uh, criticised for stepping on your toes because that's the last thing you want to do as a as an ex-football player mm. manager coach in Japan and winner of things you want to overpower the manager that's not where I'm coming from I want to help him and uh, for us all to progress and that's what we're doing and, and, and in recent times I've had two indications of just how much progress you've made down there at St James's Park in Exeter one of course we all saw the brilliant cup tie with Liverpool 
um, where you held your own against a very good team. And, of course, I work here occasionally with Clinton Morrison, who Clinton is in his mid-30s now. He's mad keen to keep playing, but away from the microphone, Steve, in quiet times, he tells me just how wonderful a little club it is. And he doesn't use that phrase in any way disparaging. He says, I'm, having, I'm playing my football at a wonderful little club. So sure. well done to you. No, it's a, it's a good place to be. And imagine you've got all these supporter owners, trust ownership. And again, it's like a model for probably how lower league football is going to go in the future. It, it will be exactly how football league goes in the, in the, in the, in the future. The, the only dark cloud in recent times, as you can see, in what's been a life well lived, Steve, is that um, about three years ago, um, people who were close to you were telling me pretty grim things that we were very close to losing you. Your health gave out for a while. Yeah, I had a aorta dissection, um, the flow of blood to the heart. If you leave a, a, a hose pipe outside for too long, eventually it cracks. My aorta cracked, so the blood was going everywhere, bar where it should be going. How close were you to dying? Well, my stepson and my daughter, um, my daughter was at the game. She went in the ambulance with me from the game. Thankfully, I was at a game. So the doctor got hold of you quickly, which is doctor a great thing. The doctor got hold very quickly. My, my stepson was called and he arrived at the hospital. My wife and other daughter were, were in London. So um, uh, he was told, Ryan, your, your dad's not going to make it. So I'm very pleased I'm here talking to you. Um, not many was, people say that, Steve. But it was on. close. I did dodge a bullet. Um, the stats are um, only 40% of people had what I had make it to hospital of those 40% that make it to hospital only 5% survive and of those 5% of those 40% if you do survive you've probably not got all your marbles about you so thankfully I've come out unscathed um, unbelievable you know some of the funny things that happen within it well tell my, us one too yeah yeah okay my daughter um, made a comment this is Ella she's now 20 so she was uh, 17, 18. She said, Dad, um, can I say something to you about your illness? So I said, please, Ella. She said, before you got ill, you were starting to talk a bit Devonian by us living down here for mm -hmm. 10 years. Yeah. And then you got ill and you was you know, out for three weeks. And when you came round, you started talking back to London again. You sort of rebooted yourself, <laughs> which was a really nice comment. And um, is she right? She well, she probably is right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I remember I was in the hospital. I was being uh, I'd, I'd I'd had the big operation in Plymouth. Thankfully, great man, uh, surgeon. And then I got transferred back to Exeter. I'm going from the ward uh, to the lift. I'm waiting for the lift. I'm groggy and all sorts and uh, this visitor to the hospital all of a sudden is looking over me recognise me I'm about three weeks in recovery from being close to death he said Steve are we going to sign a centre forward or not obviously for Exeter I looked at him as though you think I'm bothered about whether we're going to sign a centre forward or not I'm just recovering anyway so um I'm fit and well. Um, Has it changed your outlook, Steve? I don't think so. Um, um, I I certainly enjoy life. I enjoy working 
uh, whatever level of football. I'm happy to get up early every day and go in. Um, I'm full-time. Um, a loss is cost me as much as it ever did. The disappointment getting up on a Sunday morning and the first thought is, oh, Christ, we lost the home game. Oh, dear, are we going to recover from that? Or a win is greeted with the, the joy that, uh, you know, it's a lifeblood of the game. And uh, I'm as keen as ever. I'm as ambitious as ever. And um, long may it continue. Uh, where are you now in your life and with your family? And what do you hope for in the future? And what we hope will be, and you're under, no doubt under medical supervision, will be many, many more years of Steve Perryman's life. Well, I'm happy. I'm living in a good place. Um, I'm enjoying what I do day in, day out. Um, I'm particularly interested in, with my experience as a football player of so many games and so many training sessions, of passing on that knowledge so that if young players can have a shortcut to their improvement, I'd like it to be me helping them with that improvement. Um, you know, to be honest, Exeter players don't can't demand that much money to be playing for Exeter, but it doesn't mean to say they can't make it a lot higher. Jamie Vardy is case in point. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've sold a player, Matt Grimes, to mm. Swansea, who's doing doing very well. So um, I want to be part of that club's improvement. Uh, I want the club to thrive. Uh, I want me to thrive. I've got uh, six children between myself and my second wife, Kim. Um, we've got six children and they've got grandchildren. We've got six grandchildren, just had our first grandson which is great, Sam. So, um, yeah, I want to see as much of them as I can within working. And, um, yeah, the, the, the pressure is off in terms of striving to, to try and make millions or open businesses or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, if, I can, if I can help people improve by a bit of honesty, a bit of what Bill Nicholson gave me, a bit of what Ted Perryman gave me, a bit of what Phil Holder gave me, good advice at the right time, um, showing people the way where to go. Um, I'm not righteous by any means. I know what it's like to duck and dive, and, and you know, I swear occasionally, although hopefully not on this programme tonight, but uh, um, I like to think I can help the game improve. Uh, I'm always on at the referees, uh, leaders, the assessors, that I think there's, there's too many people with self-interest, too much selfishness. Agents have got too big a role to play in this game of ours. Um, you know, the wrong type of owners are not to be uh, not to be applauded. Um, for instance, I think bad coaches are, are spending as much time telling players how not to play, i.e. wasting time. Wasting time. When would, they, when would the authorities realise that people pay good money to watch the ball in play and not out of play. When a goalkeeper, away goalkeepers, they're a goal in front, the away team, taking a minute and a half to take a goal kick. It's rubbish. They're killing the sport. They're killing the game. This wonderful game that gives us all a living and has given us a living. So uh, I want to point out those things that are, you know, not obvious to some people. So, um, well, so yeah. The most important part of that was at the very first bit when you said you're happy, Steve, and that is... A wonderful way for us to end the show. Um, I rarely do this because often I've met some wonderful people on this show, but I want to thank you personally for the pleasure you've brought into my life. Um, what I think about football and footballers 
is what I think about you. Um, which is why I still do this for a living. But that's it, I'm afraid, for this edition of My Sporting Life with a remarkable Steve Perriman. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.